and establishing his rule. From the very beginning of his ministry, though, he said things like, in his gospel, this is Mark chapter 1, verse 14, said, as soon as John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus came and very knew from the very outset who he was in his public ministry as the Messiah, as the promised Savior of God's people. And if we think for just a moment about how long it was and once his, from his public announcement here in Mark chapter 11 till his death, I think we get maybe that last reason why Jesus has not told people publicly that he's the Messiah. Because as soon as he told them, as soon as he made the announcement, because as soon as he rode into Jerusalem, fulfilling prophecy like Isaiah chapter 9, verse 9, that was the moment in which he was going to bring the kingdom of God. But it wasn't going to be as they expected. And it was going to result in him dying on the cross. And I have some three D's for us to look at as we're going through this and seeing Jesus's public announcement, seeing Jesus's demands, the king's demands, looking at the king's decorum. Yes, I looked up a synonym for that one to get a D word. And also the king's delay. The king's demands, the king's decorum, and the king's delay. That's probably the first thing that you notice from this whole incident. You notice that Jesus sent his disciples into town, told them what they were to expect, and he commandeered a ride, a steed for himself, which he was going to ride into Jerusalem. And it's really quite interesting how he sends them. He sends them, tells them that they're going to go into the village, that right when they enter it, they're going to find a young colt or a young donkey that has never been ridden and it's going to be tied up that they're to untie it. And when they untie it, obviously what's going to happen is the neighbors are going to look at him and say, well, what are you doing? And Jesus tells them exactly what to say in order for them to keep moving, to bring it back, to lead to this whole triumphal entry. And there's a lot of time spent doing this, isn't there? This whole description from verses one to verse six, all looking at this. And what we see here is we see that Jesus in his divine, as a divine king, that he's not just the Messiah. He's not just the mediator in the sense of a human figure, a human anointed one. But the son of David was also the son of God. There is some debate on this matter. Mark chapter 14, verses 13 through 16, kind of has a similar situation in which Jesus tells the disciples to go and prepare for the Lord's Supper, that they were to find this house, that they were to walk in the upper room, that they would find a table spread for them. And because of this, people think that 
Jesus could have just as easily as knowing all the details of the future, could have just as easily just prepared and prearranged this situation. After all, Jesus's kingship would still be on display. He would still be making demands, commandeering uh, rides, if you will, that he would ride into Jerusalem. He would still be fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. That interpretation is possible. But I think in both situations, the reason why the gospel authors spend the time to do this is to show Jesus's command over the situation, to show that he knew before he ever walked into this city, he knew that once they entered it, they would immediately find a donkey that has never been ridden, just tied outside. And Jesus knew exactly what words to tell them to get them to untie and be able to bring that donkey to him. Jesus's lordship has already been shown to be something more and beyond just mere human capabilities and a human capacity since the very beginning of the gospel. Mark chapter 2 gives the picture of the paralytic being lowered through the roof. Do you remember? And in the back row, there was Pharisees who asked themselves, who does this man think he is who says that he has the authority to forgive sins? And it says something interesting. It says Jesus, knowing their thoughts, responded to that statement and showed that he did have the authority to forgive sins. Now, what was Jesus doing? How was Jesus figuring out what's going on in their minds? Well, there's a way I could interpret it, that he was sitting on the back row, and just as I see some of you when I'm preaching make faces and I can tell what's going on in your head, he could have very well just looked and said, seeing them making weird faces, whispering to each other. Maybe Jesus just saw that and responded to that statement. Possibly, but in the same breath, Jesus shows and is demonstrating that he has the capacity and the authority to forgive sins, an authority which belongs to God alone. And I think the same thing is being demonstrated here. That Jesus is showing his disciples and demonstrating to them that he knows the future, that he knows all the different details of what's going on, and he knows all the means that are going to get them to the ends for which he is purposed. You see, when we think about God's sovereignty, when we think about being God, being the king of the universe, we know that what God has is a plan. And sometimes we think about this plan in some fatalistic terms, and we think that God is going to accomplish his his, uh, plans much like the Greeks thought, which is that fate is like a cart tied around your ankle that's pushed off a cliff, that you have no control of the situation, you're completely overpowered and you're drugged in the direction that the gods want you to, to go in completely against your will. What we have here on display is actually a more biblical picture, not one of absolute necessity, but that God controls all the events of human history and leads to particular ends. 
in accordance, not doing violence to the will of his creatures. When Jesus came into t- when the disciples came into town and untied the donkeys, the people could have stopped it. The people could have looked and saw what he's doing and saying, you can't take that. This donkey doesn't belong to you. But fortunately, Jesus gave them the words to speak, saying, don't worry, Jesus is not stealing this donkey. He's exercising his right as a king, commandeering a vehicle, much like the police can do, commandeer a vehicle in order to catch a criminal. Except in this case, Jesus is commandeering a steed to, for his very public entrance, and the people submit to it and say, okay, that makes sense. You'll return it. Sounds good. Jesus shows he's king by his very knowledge of the events and the demands he makes not only determines the ends, but also the means and everything that leads in between. But Jesus's main feature of his kingly identity to his people is not found so much as that, but in his public declaration, in the decorum of it. The king's decorum. I had to Google what that word meant. I was thinking regal. I was thinking decorum in the sense of a kingly, maybe vestments, robes. But decorum is just simply etiquette. And I think that's a really important way that we should view this. Because if you think about Mark's intended audience, a bunch of Roman citizens, how regal was this event? How grand was it for Roman generals who would get up on a white horse, armor-plated, have troops uh, going into town before them, have a parade and people forced to participate in the celebration? Really, from an outsider's perspective, this would have been something pretty low-key, not really regal. What Jesus is intent on doing is not following the world standards of a glorious entry of the glorious king of kings into Jerusalem, but instead what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing is following the etiquette of God's word, the mission that the Father gave him. Jesus has been intent his whole life to do everything according to Scripture. And Matthew's gospel is really key and helpful here in showing that every aspect of his life was a fulfillment of scripture, God's word coming to pass. And what Jesus determined to do here and what all the Jews recognized was that he was the Messiah riding into town. Second Kings, when Jehu is made kings, the same sort of fanfare is uh, displayed where cloaks, people's cloaks are thrown uh, upon the streets, trampling in, walking in on the street as the entrance of the king. And everyone shouted there, all hail King Jehu. But what Jesus is riding on is a donkey, not a horse. In the cult, really, this word that's used throughout Mark, could be referred to either a young horse or a young donkey. It's just a a pack animal. 
But we get from the verse he's quoting, which is Zechariah 9, that it was a donkey. And Matthew and Luke make it clear that the animal that he was riding was a donkey. The donkey didn't have a saddle. It had a makeshift saddle of the disciples laying their cloaks to pat it. He was walking across branches that were laid out before them. And these branches are really the same thing, the types of leaves that would be used to stuff into pillows and cushions. What they're doing here in laying out their cloaks, laying out these leaves, is they're making a path, a comfortable path for the king to come in. Much like the red carpet. But this is a red carpet that's particular to the Messiah and everyone notices it when they see him riding on a donkey. And the people cry out the very words of Zechariah 9.9 that Robert read for us. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Who was that in Zechariah? It might be helpful just to keep your finger there in Zechariah and just, or keep your finger rather in Mark and turn to Zechariah 9.9 if you hadn't seen it before. Notice that what is said is, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Jesus is riding in, and the reason his choice for an animal is actually the exact opposite of what the Roman generals are trying to communicate to their audience when they ride in on a horse. And far apart from the horse coming in, the war horse, what he's come to do is to cut off, actually, the chariot of Ephraim, to cut off the war horse of Jerusalem. The battle bows are broken. Why? Because this king shall be speak peace to the nations. Expectations can be something somewhat of a letdown, can't they? I have a friend who she was, every, for, before every test, she would tell everyone, oh, I failed this test. Oh, I failed that test so badly. And then once she got her results back, it'd be a 90, it'd be 99. She was an overachiever. And it was kind of funny. I asked her, why, you know, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you be just more realistic about the situation? And her reasoning was basically that, well, if I have high expectations that I did really well, when the situation doesn't meet my expectations, I'll be really disappointed. But if I kind of mentally prepare and lie to myself and say that I did really bad, I'm always going to be happy. And that's kind of silly, right? But the thing is, is we often set our expectations and have plans that are not God's demands. We pray at the end of our prayer so often, let your will be done. But oftentimes, even though we have that statement at the end of our prayer, we're not actually okay if God does not give us the answer we like. Expectations can be hurtful. If what we put on God is the requirement to answer all our prayers and to do exactly what he's going to do in the future in a way that's going to be in accordance with our 
plans. You know, the reality is, is that when it comes to the future, we make choices, we make plans, but whether they're successful or not depends entirely upon God and his capabilities. We make plans, but they often fail. And if we actually looked at what we were trying to achieve, if we look at our past, we would see that a lot of our plans would have led to pretty terrible results. When it comes to understanding God as our king, what we need is, as fundamental importance is to understand that we can entrust the results to God. And these people recognized and expected, they saw Jesus coming in on a donkey in humility, but they didn't really see that aspect of his ministry. We know this because they're going to murder him in five days when he doesn't accomplish the things they think that the Messiah should accomplish. These people have a fundamental misunderstanding of what the rule of Christ is. There's a certain sense, though, that hindsight helps us. Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah intentionally. But what's the full fulfillment of this event? He comes to speak peace to the nations, yes, in verse 10, but his rule shall be from sea to sea. God sends him to save his people, but verse 14 says, the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will go forth from like lightning. The Lord will sound the trumpet and will march in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, to be full like a bowl drenched like the corners of an altar. What's being pictured here is that the Messiah is going to come to his people, speak peace to all the nations, and come in judgment, and he will judge the world, pouring out the bowl of God's wrath. We see that image reoccur in Revelation of what the angels will be doing, pouring out the bowls of God's wrath on the earth. You see, what they have here is this expectation with all this decorum, all this etiquette, they recognized it, that the Messiah is coming, but they weren't willing to submit to God's plan for what would happen. God's plan was to send his son at first, not to condemn the world because the world was condemned already. He sent his son, this is John chapter three, which I quote so often, verse 17. He sent his son into the world, not to judge it because it's judged already. He sent his son so that he might save the world. You see, when the prophets were looking into the future coming of the Messiah, They saw everything that he would accomplish that was being held out for them for the truth of what he would do. It was very clear that he was going to come, suffer, and die in Isaiah, and yet judge the nations. What Jesus made clear is that salvation is possible because of the work he would come at first. The blood of his covenant purchasing salvation, not just for the Jews, but from people from every tribe and tongue. And that in his kindness and in his patience, 
he would not judge the world immediately, but he would purchase the salvation of his people and draw people to salvation in Christ. He established his kingdom when he was raised on the throne of his cross and ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of God. Right now, Jesus is king. But his kingdom is not something which they would have expected. Notice verse 10. Now I'm turning back to Mark chapter 11, verse 10, that they keep saying Hosanna. What is Hosanna? Well, that's just a Hebrew word, translated word, transliterated word, just like baptism. The Greek word for baptism is baptism because there's some confusion on how to train it and disagreements, whether it means immersion, cleaning, uh, some sort of cleaning ritual. Same thing's true with Hosanna, except Hosanna's a lot clearer. Hosanna's kept in this instance to mark the words that they said, which is, God, save us. That's the word. Hosanna just means, God, save us. They knew that God, in sending his Messiah, that God himself would visit his people. God himself would judge the world. And what we see in the person of Jesus Christ is that his fulfillment of Scripture entailed him being the God-man who came to deliver his people. God with us. This is the significance of his name being Emmanuel, God with us. But Jesus comes bringing a kingdom. Jesus is a king. We need to be really careful not to forget this. Is Jesus our friend? Yes. Does Jesus love us? Yes. But is Jesus still the King of kings and Lord of lords? Is God still someone as Hebrews chapter 13, or is it chapter 12? I have it quoted down somewhere in here. That our God is a consuming fire, that we're to worship him with reverence, in all. You know, there's a controversy some 20, 30 years ago now called Lordship Controversy, in which churches were kind of disagreed over the matter. They wanted to believe that you could have Jesus as your Savior pay for all your sins without submitting to him as Lord of your life. Let me just go ahead and tell you, dispel you of any false notions that Jesus is not your Savior if he is not your Lord. If he is not your King, if you do not bend the knee to him, you have no hope of salvation. That salvation is equated to belonging in the kingdom of God, not because of your location of being in the kingdom of God, but because of your relation to the King as your King, as your representative as your savior. But the king, when he arrived, did something that they were probably not expecting. It's actually really an anticlimactic triumphal entry. Palm Sunday, when he rides in on the steed, has this small group of people in Jerusalem, and it is at Passover, so it probably could have been a large crowd. But when he gets in, we see where he's heading. Verse 11, we see this sense in which it seems like there's a delay. 
And I have a lot of question marks afterwards because it's only a seeming delay. Verse 11, Jesus entered into Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when looking around at everything, it was late and he went out to Bethany with the 12. You know, it's really actually helpful that we have Mark's account. Matthew and Luke portray the incident as Jesus riding in on a donkey, going into the temple and cleansing it, restoring it to a house of prayer for all the nations. That is what Jesus first does in that temple. Matthew and Luke are correct in that. But Jesus, but what we see here is a more orderly account of the instances. You see, John chapter 12 tells us that when Jesus came in, he had a cord of whips, which he used to whip people out of the temple, that he went over to the money changers and he flipped them over, and that he did it in such a way to drive everyone out. Making a cord of whips is something you kind of have to plan to do. Jesus has been to this temple many times. He sees what has gone on, what goes on in the temple. He went there when he was a boy, when he was 12 years old. Jesus knew the sin that was there. Jesus saw the corruption. Jesus planned, made whip, and he would cleanse his temple for his arrival. But that's not what happened on this Sunday. This Sunday, Jesus arrives. And I think Mark's main point in not describing, showing that he just went home, is to leave us on that cliffhanger that Zechariah chapter 9 leaves us on. We see Jesus, that the Messiah would ride in, that his rule would be across the whole globe, and that judgment would come. But that's not what happened. Not because judgment was delayed, but, but it was God's plan to show mercy not just to Israel, but to all the world, that Jesus came to speak peace to all the nations. Isn't that what Zechariah 9 verse 10 said? He would not be able to do that. He would not be able to accomplish that, the means to God's plan if he did not, if he had would have done what they expected him to do and brought judgment at that moment, at that hour. And we're kind of in the same spot, aren't we? We only have one more moment on the redemptive historical calendar. It's the second coming of Jesus. You know, we're told that Jesus will ride in on a white horse. Where do we get that picture? Revelation chapter 19, where if you'll flip over there, Revelation chapter 19, it's important to see this, to see that our king is really a king and that he really will bring judgment upon all the nations. Revelation chapter 19, I'm actually going to turn there myself because I did not write this quote down, in which we read, There we go. Then, verse 11, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. 
one sitting on it called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and make, makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. That name is Yahweh, by the way. His eyes are like a flame. Sorry, verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. This is written by John. John said that the word was with God and the word was God and that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is John's title for who Jesus is. And in case you're missing that, he's wearing a robe of white dipped in blood. Judgment is still coming. Judgment day has not been delayed, not for a moment. It is going to happen exactly on God's timetable. And we're waiting for that moment. We're waiting just like the people of Israel were at that moment. But we encounter the same problem when our expectations are that our life is going to go exactly as we would have it go. That we wouldn't encounter any suffering or any pain. That once we become a Christian and we know of his love, Surely he wouldn't have us suffer. Surely nothing would come into our lives. Surely when we see this world in the political domain seeming to collapse and people hating one another, surely this means that Jesus is going to come soon. The reality is when Jesus comes back is not up to us. And many people have thought that their day was the chaotic day in which God had to send the Lord Jesus Christ to come and conquer all sin. We look out at our circumstances and we see how out of control it is and we just want God to bring it into control. That is not up to us. What is up to us is to be faithful to the king obedient to the king. As Hebrew chapter four tells us that as long as today is called today, as long as we have a future hope of heaven, a future hope of the new heavens and new earth, today is the day of salvation. And judgment day can might be for the whole world at some unforeseen moment that only the father knows. But for you, it could be at any moment. For everyone is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We talk about eschatology, end times views. Do you know that there's a personal end times at the end of your life in which you will die and stand before him? Don't you know that he is good and he is righteous and he will give every sin what it deserves? And as long as you have breath in your lungs, that's an indication to you that God in his mercy has given you another day, another hour on loan from him as the creator. He is being merciful to you. Let's not spurn that mercy. Instead, let's live for our king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that you, the Lord, are our 
judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. And yes, the Lord is our king. And we entrust our salvation. And we know it wholly depends upon the king of kings. Lord, we thank you that the way you established your kingdom was not through judgment immediately. That instead you corrected the thoughts of your people. In Luke's gospel, you said that you corrected the people who thought immediately judgment would come. We thank you that you've shown us in the revelation of your son that your intention, your purpose was to bring salvation to the whole world. Lord, we would not know salvation. We would have no hope if Jesus had not come and did what he did. If he didn't establish his kingdom in two phases. If the kingdom did not come in and have it inaugurated and only later fully consummated. But Lord, we thank you that even though the judgment day has been put off as far as we are concerned and from our perspective, we thank you that you have delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the beloved Jesus Christ. Lord, we are so thankful to you, and we pray that you'd help us to grasp this reality more and more each day. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If you'll stand with me, let's respond to God's word, singing his praises. Singing from hymn number 170, Fairest Lord Jesus. Hymn number 170. Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all there are the mechanicals Jesus is there. 